Today's guest has lived through over 70 roommates in a one-bedroom apartment. I know it sounds impossible, but hang hang in there because she's going to tell us how she did it. She's also been through online dating, international travel, and so much more. We're going to meet her in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Jennifer Laurie is today's guest, and she is the author of Alone in the Backseat, which is a memoir and a blog. Jennifer, welcome to Mind Talk. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, Jennifer, let's start at the beginning. Um, Alone in the Backseat, and I'm, I'm looking at the cover of Alone in the Backseat, and folks might get a particular thought about what this book is about. Tell us what it's about. Well, the book is about, it's a memoir, so it's about my life, and it comprises a bunch of different aspects of my life. So I, after I graduated college, I didn't want to get a job right away, like a real job. So I spent a few years living abroad. So the book talks about my travels. It talks about, so it's kind of like a travel book, but at the same time, it also talks about the failures that I've experienced since then as an adult and going through divorce, trying to pay my mortgage, which, as you mentioned, led to me having over 70 roommates in my one-bedroom apartment. And the cover of the book and the title, a lot of people, when I did this cover, they said, well, you should have a picture of yourself in the back seat. And I was like, well, that's just a little bit too obvious. So the cover is really a metaphor for me really being alone in the backseat and having this like naked, well, not quite naked, but almost naked selfie of myself that the whole world can see while I'm still really alone in the backseat without just one special person to share that kind of thing with. Let's talk about uh, an experience you had with a therapist, your um, marriage was not going the way that you wanted. Um, you were not happy in your life at one point. Right. And you were in therapy, and your therapist said that part of your problem, part of your challenge, was the fact that your childhood was too idyllic. Yep. So that's kind of a head twister. Ex- explain that, if you will. Yeah. So I, as I write in the book, when she said that to me, I thought she was crazy because I thought, well, if you have a perfect childhood, doesn't that set you up for a great adulthood? You know, I always thought that it was just people that had had trauma or just neglect or something bad in their childhood would be the ones that would struggle as adults. And she said to me, well, you know, the fact that you had such a good childhood could be causing your problems. And it really took me a while to understand how that could make sense. And, you know, and I, I really was serious about going through the process. So I took it to heart and I really thought about it and I analyzed it and I processed it. And I thought, okay, you know, maybe it's just because my expectations are too high and they're not, realistic based on the time that I grew up, the family that I grew up in. So it was a really eye-opening lesson that I learned. Well, as you began to go through the process of understanding what the therapist was suggesting, tell us, uh, give us like a, a tiny thumbnail sketch of what your growing up was like. Well, I'm from Maine. 
And I grew up as only child, which is another one of the reasons that my book is called Alone in the Backseat, because I was always alone in the backseat of my parents' car. And, um, you know, we had, uh, uh, we lived in a little white Cape Cod house. I had my own room. Obviously, I had my own room. Um, But, you know, it was just like a very nice and warm environment. We had a big backyard. There were woods. It was, you know, a time in America that it was safe and you could go play in the woods by yourself and be in touch with nature. And there was like lilac trees going growing outside my window. And my mom was a stay at home mom, you know, until I was in sixth grade. You know, I had a playroom in the basement. It was just it was it was. I was very lucky. It was just an ideal situation that anyone, that every child should be able to have. I went to a really good public school. I had really nice friends. There weren't mean girls. There weren't bullies. It was just, I mean, I don't really have anything that I could complain about. It sounds like maybe a- homework. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like a wonderful childhood. It really was. Okay, and well, you know we were also very fortunate because we also had a summer house. Um, you know we weren't like rich or we weren't we were just comfortable. But you know I got to grow up at the beach and I walk around Portland by myself when I was little. My mom would drop me off and I would just go shopping on my own. And you know it was just a safe and happy time. So, given your description of your childhood, can you tell us what kinds of challenges brought you into therapy? Well, my husband and I just weren't getting along, and we were miserable, and we couldn't figure out how to get along. And we talked a lot about getting divorced, and we knew we needed help, and you know, one of the lessons I learned, not from the therapy, but just from being married, was I thought, like, I just thought I hated him, and I thought I wanted to be divorced all the time. That's all I thought, and I didn't realize, actually, I'm just mad. And if we had had different tools to know, like, oh, just go take a walk and cool off, you know, maybe my marriage would have been saved. If we had gone to counseling earlier, our marriage might have been saved. I always, always tell people, if you're having any problems in your relationship, just go get help because it's really hard sometimes to know what you're doing wrong. It's hard to see your mistakes when you're making them. And uh, I really believe in counseling. And I think the earlier, the better. I think, you know, we waited way too long. We did it right at the end. And by the time we went, he was pretty much checked out and he decided he didn't want to continue. And that was when I knew, oh my God, like I, I really don't want a divorce. I really do love you. I'm just mad all the time. And you know, one of the things, one of the things that's very true is that a lot of times couples, when they enter into treatment, I mean, you were by no stretch alone. um, One or both of them enter treatment as the last ditch. Okay. This is the last thing I'm going to do to try to make this work, but really I'm already done and, and I don't really care if it works or not. Um, So Mm -hmm. the fact that the two of you went in from your perspective uh, almost too late is very, very common. I am sad to say. Let's talk about um, some more of the things that you've written. I've noticed in your blog, um, which is titled Alone in the Backseat, oddly enough, um, you (laughs) you, you say that there are three kinds of men. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell us about one kind of man and we'll finish up on the other side of the break okay 
Well, the first kind of man is the kind of man who only wants to have sex. That's all he's interested in. And luckily, he's really honest and upfront about it. Okay, he's honest and upfront about it. Well, that was quick and easy. Yeah. All right, tell before the break, <laughs> tell us about the second kind. Man wants a relationship. So he is looking for a girlfriend, a wife. And if he can't have either of those, the relationship also includes friendship. So he's happy to have an actual relationship, whether it's friendship, boyfriend, girlfriend, or marriage. So the second kind of man, let me just make sure I get this. The first kind of man is interested in sex, sex only. He lets you know, and then you decide. The second kind of man Mm -hmm. is interested in a full relationship, but if that doesn't work, he also has the capacity to have a friendship with you. Yes. Okay. Number two sounds not so bad. What about the third kind? (laughs) Well, the third kind is really a number one who really just wants to have sex, but he pretends that he's a number two and that he wants a relationship. Ah. And he's not just pretending. I don't really think that, luckily, I haven't been exposed to many people that are malicious. So I don't think that this guy is really malicious and trying to mislead you on purpose. He's also misleading himself. Gotcha. He thinks that he's a better guy than he really is. Gotcha. Jennifer, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, folks, stay where you are. We will continue with Alone in the Back Seat with Jennifer Laurie. Don't go away. Jennifer, before we go too much further um, in your memoir, I got to go back to something that I actually opened our conversation with today, which is the fact that you lived with over 70 people, not all at the same time, in a one-bedroom apartment. How does one navigate that and be alive and be sane? You got to help us out. (laughs) That's a great question. I love how you posed it. So I really believe in accepting reality as it is. And I think we are conditioned to have expectations based on the society that we grew up in, which at the rapid pace of our changing society is not the society that we're living in now. And you really saw that during the housing crisis when people were just buying things that were totally outside of their um, budgets because, you know, that was what their parents had been able to do 30 years ago. And so through the marriage counseling and my counselor saying to me, you know, one of your problems is that you expect things to be like they were when you were little. It made me realize I really need to accept reality as it is. And reality as it is, as it was at the time was I either, go into major debt and maybe foreclose on my apartment because I could only afford half the mortgage or I have a good attitude. I figure out what my resources are and I look for cool people to share the burden with me. 
And it really gave me an opportunity. The way I looked at it was I had the opportunity to help people because D.C. is very expensive housing. And it's really hard to find something if you just want to be here for, say, an internship and you just want to be here for a couple of months. It's really hard because leases aren't usually very flexible. So I was really giving up people the opportunity to have a safe, warm, welcoming environment. And they were helping me. And so I never charged people more than I needed. I didn't do it to, like, make a big profit or take advantage of people. I just did it so that I could help others and they could help me. And I think when you do things with that attitude, people really appreciate you and it makes things really fun. And like I say in the book, if you do things with the right attitude, it gives you really good stories to tell. It sounds like you had one of the original Airbnbs. You know, I think I probably did. I mean, I I started doing it before Airbnb existed. Exactly. All right. (laughs) Help help us sort of visualize what your one-bedroom apartment looked like when it was filled to what you felt was capacity. How many people were in there at one time? Okay. So when I first started doing it, I actually, I never, I intended to just find someone for my couch, but it, as I tell in the book, which I don't want to spoil too much, um, that turned into me actually having two beds in the living room and two beds in the bedroom. So there would be four of us at all times in the beginning. And sometimes if there was like a lay, a, um, an overlap where one person was going to move out and another person was going to move in, but there was a little overlap, I would have someone on the couch or I would actually have another air mattress. So at the most for like, I would have five people staying with me or, you know, including me. So five of us. Okay. So um, this, sounds, a couple times, this, this sounds like you must've had, I don't know, a thousand square foot apartment at least. Yeah. Yeah. My, my apartment's really, really large. My bedroom, everyone who comes to my apartment is like, Oh my God, your bedroom is huge. So I'm very lucky that my apartment was very flexible. It's easy to move the furniture around and it's really big. So there's a lot of room to comfortably accommodate people. It didn't, it never felt crowded. I mean, it, it was weird <laughs> having room offices in my living room and dining room, which is one big space, but I mean, it looked weird, but it was not uncomfortable. It was, it was fun. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you in today's world, particularly if you listen to the news, doing an Airbnb, for example, or just having people you don't know in your space can be kind of dicey. Did you ever, I mean, how did you determine who was okay to rent to? And, well, let me just hold with that. How did you determine determine who was a safe candidate for renting? Well, I so my little trick was I didn't have any pictures of my apartment up on my ad. So what I did was when someone responded to my ad, I would say, thank you for responding to my ad. If you friend me on Facebook, you can see pics of my apartment in an album called Desperate to Live in an Awesome Location, which was the title of my ad. And um, and so so that way, once they friended me, I could do my background check on them. Ah. And you can tell a lot by someone's Facebook. You can tell if they party too much they drink too much you know which you know in general I mean I don't care but if they're going to live with me I want someone who's you know not going to have pictures of them drunk all the time um you can tell their political persuasions you can tell you know just you can tell a lot what kind of tv shows they like if you're compatible so I would not run to anyone 
who did not have Facebook. And I wouldn't run to anyone who did not have a robust Facebook account where I could really see. And I can tell you that that worked really well. It's really funny, though. I had one roommate who was this woman who was just like, you know, I'm very, you know, like a quote unquote normal looking. And this one woman that was that applied to live with me, she was like covered with piercings things and tattoos and all this stuff and I was like I don't know but then I saw we had the old Roseanne TV show which used to be like my favorite show we had that in common that we both liked it so I was like okay if she likes Roseanne we're gonna get along great and she was one of my favorite moments I ever had. Let's talk about the difference between being alone and and loneliness. You had lots of different people in your life either because they were living in your space um, or because you were traveling or in different jobs what's the difference for you between being alone and being lonely that's a great question and that is a question that a lot of people confront I through my blog and people contacting me I know that there are so many people out there that are just aching with loneliness and I think the difference between being alone and being lonely is when you're alone you're fine you can entertain yourself you don't have to have people around you all the time but when you're lonely it hurts like it makes I write in my book that it would make my organs feel like they were like withering up and dying and you can be lonely when you have people all around you if they're not giving you the attention that you need or the love that you need or engaged with you or, or whatever, you know, loneliness can be in a crowd and it can be, and you can, and you can be not lonely at all when you're by yourself. It's just when you don't get that human contact and engagement that you need, that is loneliness. You know, there are certainly people who, do everything and anything they can to avoid uh, being alone. And, and I would suggest that those people are perhaps one of the loneliest people or some of the loneliest people in the world because they can't tolerate being just alone with themselves and enjoying their own space. Mm-hmm. Tell us about yeah. your... Tell us oh, about ahead. your experience with dating apps. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I'm so sick of them. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> oh, God. Um, that's a big question. Let's see. Um, so, oh, I don't know where to begin on that. I mean, I don't know. Do you want to know my pros and cons of each individual app, the way that I think they're affecting society, like, that's a broad topic. <laughs> you know, tell us about how you believe dating apps are affecting society. Okay. All right. Well, one thing I hear a lot is that people think that because of dating apps, people are becoming more and more selective, and they just think, oh, well, I'm not going to put my out there with this person because I can just go home and swipe and the next person, you know, might be one swipe away that I would love. And I don't agree with that. I think, well, I do think that they've enabled us to be more selective because we do know that we have a much larger pool of candidates. But I think that when you meet someone, you have a spark. 
you know, if you're meeting the right person, you have a spark. And I don't think that the fact that there's a larger pool affects whether or not you click with the person that you're meant to click with. If there's chemistry and that spark there, it doesn't matter if your phone is full of 8,000 other people. You're going to focus on in on that one person. So the way I always tell people how to know if you found someone like you really want a second date with and you really like is when you go home afterwards and you don't want to swipe. And it's like kind of a barometer for how much you really like people. Um, I think they I think sadly they've affected society in a way that people are just so callous and and unabashed at being very rude and yeah. having very bad manners and asking very inappropriate questions. And that's one of the things I like to talk about on my blog. I put a lot of screenshots. I have a lot of blog posts of screenshots where people say things to me that are really inappropriate and instead of, you know, jumping down their throats and getting really defensive, I try to come at them with a more emotionally mature approach and say, you know what, I, I think you could do better than that. Like, I believe in you. And because I learned that men are very, very fragile egos. And if you're mean to them, they will turn on you in a dime and they are brutal. So I learned to get more flies with honey. Well, that is an interesting perspective. And, and you know, the, the fact that you give perhaps the other side, uh, maybe a more human side of what it can be like uh, to, to meet people through the dating apps, I think is really important. For some people, they're wonderful. For some people, they're less wonderful. For some people, it's horrifying. Jennifer, we're going to take a break, and we will be right back with more of Jennifer Laurie and Alone in the Backseat. Don't go away, folks. Jennifer, one of the things that you have um, done in your book is to share with us some of the lists that you have created in your life. And you created a list of things you love and things you hate. And I think that that would be something wonderful for everybody who's listening to really take time out today and do. And the list can be as long or as short as you would like it to be. What's your thought about the value of lists for people in general? I mean, I'm definitely a list maker. <laughs> I have a lot of lists. I started them when I was probably in maybe sixth grade. And I used to read these books by Lois Lowry about, um, I, I never knew if her name was pronounced Anastasia or Anastasia, but there was this whole series of books. And this girl had a green notebook. And my notebook was blue, but I copied her. Um, and I just started making all sorts of lists. And, and it's funny, it made me, it kind of made me think in a way, you know, I have a list of my favorite TV shows and favorite songs and favorite actors. And like you said, the things that I love and hate. And it got to the point where I think that actually kind of uh, 
maybe mess with my mind a little bit because it got to the point where I felt like I always had to choose a favorite. And I remember this is totally off topic, but I remember I spent years trying to figure out if I liked Haagen-Dazs or Ben and Jerry's better. And it really stressed me out for a really long time until I finally realized which one was my favorite. So yeah, I think. (laughs) That sounds like very important research actually. I am a big ice cream lover. (laughs) You're kidding. I never would have thought that. (laughs) Of the things that you love, and and I just share this with the listeners because it really speaks to the expansiveness with which you approach at least some of your lists. You love creativity, watermelon, and classical architecture. I mean, what a wonderful sort of joyful way to be open. And that's not all that you love, but that's just an example. And then when you talk about the things that you hate, you include war, self-centeredness, people who don't care. Again, it's, it's an expansive list, and it's a thoughtful list of what's important to you. Bravo. Thank you. Yeah, well, that's my middle school and high school version of myself. And I have to say that my adult version feels the exact same way. <laughs> <laughs> the The memoir that you have created um, really speaks to a woman, as you've said, who's gone through many things and survived many things. And um, I, I wonder what you would like for the listeners of today's conversation to take away from some of your experiences? I love this question. So I think my biggest message, I have a couple, but my my biggest message to a listener who might be struggling and might be feeling hopeless and might be feeling like nothing is going well, and the whole message of my book, I had kind of I was really depressed before I wrote my book. Um, Things hadn't worked out in a relationship that I really wanted it to. You know, I was divorced. I was living with all these roommates. And even though I felt like I was always trying to make the best out of a bad situation. And that gets exhausting. And I, so I kind of lost my hopefulness. But then this, this thing happened, which caused me to write the book, which I don't want to give any spoilers for that. Um, But that reminded me to be hopeful and that you should, and as I say in the book, I used to, be a really big fan of the TV show Survivor. And in that show, the host, Jeff Probst, always says, you should never give up. You never, ever know what can happen because the game can change and someone on the bottom can become on the top of the game and they can win. And um, so that, I, I, that always stuck in my head, but I had forgotten it. And I love that message to just like, you never know what can happen. Life is an adventure. You might be on the downslope or maybe the upslope of the roller coaster one minute, but then you're going down and having a great time the next. So as long as you just keep putting yourself out there, keep thinking positive, you can even repeat to yourself, think positive, think positive, think positive, because that was how I started off my 2008, uh, my 2017, after a really bad 2016, I started my year off telling myself, think positive, think positive, think positive. And I ended up writing a book <laughs> and starting a blog. So you just, you never know what can happen. So just don't give up. And then the other message I want to leave people with is just be kind, like just be nice, assume the best of others. Nobody really knows what they're doing. And most people are just trying their hardest. So if someone comes across as crass or rude, it's just because they don't know any better and they just need a little patience. 
And you could really be surprised at how you can turn around, like, someone's day or conversation or attitude. Jennifer, how do people get information about your blog, about your book, about all the things you're doing? Um, people can follow my blog, or they can go to my blog, which is www.aloneinthebackseat.com. They can follow my Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash alone in the backseat. And they can also follow me at Jen Laurie, that's J-E-N-L-O-U-R-I-E, on Instagram. And um, I'm constantly updating that. So Wonderful. <laughs> I'm trying to think of new blog topics. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing your life view. It really has been delightful to talk with you. Thank you so much. I loved being on your show. <laughs> Folks, thank you as well for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk, so do send an email to me at Pamela, P A M E-L-A at mindtalk.org, and that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot org. In addition to being able to listen to Mind Talk at the website, you can listen to Mind Talk on several of your fra- favorite platforms. So just do a search for Mind Talk, M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K, with Dr. Pamela Brewer. Thanks again for listening, and remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.